fact, I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, welcome back. Uh, <laughs> Utah weather this, this week has been very warm, up in the 50s. A lot, all the snow in the valley has melted, which is great, but we're due for another big snowstorm next week, or actually probably later this week. So it's a typical Utah weather, uh, really cold and snowy, and then sometimes you get these midwinter, almost spring-like days, and then it starts all over again. But we're into February, and the end is near, and I can get back to work on my other various projects come spring. Got a couple of emails from some listeners. I wanted to go over those with you. I got one from George Gracia, and he said, Franz, I love your idea. And he's talking about my idea of a competing uh, certification for bareboat cruising. A few episodes back, I was ranting that I would like to set up something perhaps called Indie Sailor, but it's not going to be called Indie Sailor because I got an email from one of my listeners saying that's not a good it's not a good name. You need to have a different name. And he actually came up with some other names that would be good for it. But basically an independent instructor organization that could certify sailors as opposed to a school like the ASA that certifies sailors. But anyway, he goes on to say, Franz, love your idea. I experienced the same disappointment with the ASA racket. I'm a U.S. Coast Guard licensed merchant marine officer and U.S. Navy captain. Good idea. Press on, George. Well, George, you know, it's one of those ideas, and, and here's what my, my saying is, all good ideas degenerate into a lot of hard work. A podcast is a lot of hard work, and a YouTube videos become a lot of hard work, and this project would be a lot of hard work, and I don't have the bandwidth personally to take on this project, even though I would like to. And I think there's a demand for it. I would be glad to lead the charge, but I don't have the bandwidth to do the heavy lifting on a project like this. So it's one of those things that I'm, I'll throw out. And if other people want to join me in it and do some of the work, uh, we can work together and try to do something like this. But I just don't have the ability to do it myself. I just don't have the time. I mean, I'd never go sailing. I'd never do anything but work on podcasts and that and then my other job. Now, I did get another email from Jake, Jake Miller, in Australia, and he said, Hi, Franz, you mentioned that you were interested in starting your own training school. I like the idea of bringing some more competition to this overregulated market, as these barriers to entry have left only one school in my state that offers a course accredited to bareboat charter, and they charge like a wounded bull. <laughs> I've never heard that, that expression before. I'll try to remember that one. I'm doing my RYA day skipper course in Lefkis, Greece, the 9th to the 16th of July this year for a third of the price of here in Australia, plus I get to see the Greek islands. Some information that might be helpful I received from my charter company, the below list of courses they will accept to charter a yacht in Croatia. It's a lot more exhaustive than just the ICC, RYA, and ASA. If you're looking to work with a larger institution to set up a formal qualification, 
possibly one of these smaller associations would be more cooperative, but still be formally recognized. And he gives me a, a link to the web page that shows those uh, organizations that the charter company will accept accreditation from. So I'm going to take a look at that. And that's a really good idea. Thanks, Jake. Then I got one more email from uh, one of my listeners and a, a friend that I've actually met. He came to Salt Lake one time. And it was um, an email that he sent out to a lot of people, and I'm just one of the people he sent it out to, but I thought I would share it with you. I love the name of his website. It's from um, Charlie Oliver, and Charlie Oliver is out there actually living the dream right now, and his website, if you want to keep up with him, is getjealous.com, www.getjealous.com forward slash S.V. Rascal. That's the name of his boat, S-V-R-A-S-C-A-L. And he got a boat. They're down in uh, Florida sailing around now. He quit his job. He, I think he was a uh, manufacturer's rep for Pelts and a couple other companies, the headlight company, Pelts. And I guess he's, he's living the dream now. Charlie, I, I know I wrote you, but after you've had some time out there sailing, I want you to give me a call, and we'll do an interview, and you can tell us what it's really like. The email he sent me was basically a two-page email, and I'm not going to read that on the podcast. All right. I set up a Patreon account. I mentioned that in the last podcast. I sent out a note to all my newsletter subscribers, and I got three people so far that have become patrons. Jack Andrews was my first patron, and, and Jack was the one that kicked me in the butt to, to set up a Patreon account. Thank you so much, Jack. I appreciate it. You're my first patron. And then I got a couple others. Jake Miller, who I just read an email from, and also Howard, and I'm not sure if you want me to pronounce your last name, but Howard, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And if you want to support the podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. And if you want to go directly to my page on Patreon, it's www.patreon.com forward slash medsailor, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R. So that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash medsailor, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R. And I hope a few of you choose to support me. This takes a lot of work. And I appreciate any, any patrons. Thank you. All right. I want to thank one of my supporters, and that's Sailrite. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with the tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite Ultrafeed sewing machine. The Ultrafeed is a portable heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your marine sewing projects from covers to sails. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E.com. And just as a postscript to this, I own the Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1. And it's a fantastic machine. And if you want to start sewing canvas or sailcloth, you probably need this tool. So go check out sailrite.com. 
All right. If you have any suggestions, write me, franz1 at medsailor.com for future episodes. Please consider subscribing to the newsletter. And if you do, you get eight of the 16 lessons for my initial course in sailing, Sailing Learn to Sail Lessons for the ASA 101 exam. Now let's get on to today's interview. This is episode number six with Rory McDougall. I'm back with Rory McDougall. Rory, the last time we talked, you had sailed from Malaysia over to Sri Lanka, and, uh, and that's pretty much where we ended the, the interview, or the episode, I guess I should say, because it's a continuing episode, a continuing saga. Sure. Tell me where, uh, tell me, you, you, your passage, I think you talked about the passage, and so let's start out with you in Sri Lanka. Where did you, where did you uh, go? Southern end, northern end, where, what town did you come into? Yeah, I think I might have touched on the fact that I think we we um, we talked about going into Gaul Harbour um, down in the south, a very safe harbour, and um, I'm not sure if I mentioned the fact that uh, there were there were um, depth charges going. Yeah, there were depth charges going off at night because of the old uh, Tamil Tiger sort of infiltration of uh, of the navy ships and limpet mines and that sort of thing. So. Um, so yeah, I, I stayed in Gore, uh, in, in Gore Harbour and Sri Lanka for about a month because uh, you had to buy a, um, a visitor's visa, uh, like a cruising permit, if you like, uh, uh, when you arrived, and it was valid for one month. So after having had a pretty hectic time um, scooting through Indonesia and Malaysia, fighting all of the calm winds to, to make up a little bit on the schedule of the seasons, I was kind of ready for a rest. And um, Sri Lanka offered some some lovely um, interior visits as well. So, so the boat was very safe. Uh, it was on anchor and a, and a mooring buoy in behind as well. So she was well tethered. There were lots of other boats around as well. So lots of other cruisers that could keep an eye on the on Cookie. So after a week or two of just getting them getting all the basics done, you know, your laundry after a, a an ocean crossing and. Uh, finding out where the best places to shop are and, and all those sorts of things. Um, set up camp as you like. Um, I jumped on a train and went inland and spent about a week traveling inland. And it was just fantastic jumping on the train. Uh, I went into third class because I wanted to, you know, get, get the real flavor and, and, and spice of life on board. And, uh, and the train just sort of chugged very slowly up into the hills, uh, past tea plantations. And you could sit on the, um, on the actual step of the of the entrance to the carriageway, and just look out uh, at the vista as it went by, because <laughs> not a lot of health and safety going on there, and um, and it was just beautiful. And uh, and up in the up in the sort of interior, of course, you're quite a few hundred meters above sea level. So in the evenings, it got a lot cooler, and it was just a really pleasant change to um, to be be off the boat for a bit and uh, and just get some countryside uh, in into the veins. So. You've got vistas like, you know, just around the town of Candy in the center there. There's there's elephants being worked on a daily basis. Um, the little guest house I stayed in, there's howler monkeys that came and jumped all over the tin roof at night and that sort of thing. So it was really good. <laughs> good, um, good fun times. So, um, so yeah, I did uh, I did a good, um, good sort of tour around and uh, then I went back down to Gaul and started preparing really for for the long journey across um, the next part of the Indian Ocean, um, the uh, I think they call it the Arabian Sea. Um, 
So because I wasn't I was I wasn't really interested to stop in at uh, at India at this point. I kind of made it up on the on the time factor with the seasons, but I still needed to press on. Um, just trying to get towards um, the Red Sea in March because that that was the real crux of it. Is trying to arrive at the bottom of the Red Sea at the um, time when they predict. Uh, I think it's March and April that the the winds, the northerly winds, blow at their calmest, if you like. Um, and so you have to fight them on the way up. So it was a case of just trying to arrive there at the right time of year when they were they weren't going to really give you a good stinging. So uh, so I started to get Cookie ready, and about this time as well, with Toto on board, the Sicilian guy, we kind of decided we were having slightly different schedules and. Um, and I think I, I also wanted, and I was very honest with Toto, I said uh, I would like to get a bit of solo sailing back under my belt because it was a, you know, it was a bit of a, a demon that I had to face coming out across the Pacific, um, not knowing if I could cope with it. But once I once I sort of got all of the pieces in place in my in my psyche, I actually really enjoyed the the Zen of being at one with just yourself and your surroundings at sea. And the boat, and, and just being a whole part of it. So, after leaving Australia, I'd had crew pretty much all the way up to to Sri Lanka by this stage. So, um, we discussed it, and, and Toto found another boat, a French guy uh, on a monohull, to uh, to sail on and uh, carry on the journey with. And so, <clears throat> I headed off from Sri Lanka on my own, and uh, and headed across the, uh, the the Indian Ocean up to the the Gulf of uh, Aden. And, uh, and Aden, the port of Aden itself, and that voyage was was amazing, Franz. It was it was the most calm and steady ocean crossing I have ever had. Um, you know, we left Sri Lanka, and there's normally a good northerly breeze between Sri Lanka and India, which didn't let us down. We were scooting along on a beam reach, and then under underneath India and heading off, uh, pretty much heading northwest, the prevailing northeasterlies really just blew about a force two to three just about the whole way and for a boat like cookie that's great we were still peeling off good 120 to 140 mile days in those sorts of conditions and so what was lovely is that normally on cookie you got wet decks and and water splashes up and down below and over your head and and gets in lots of different places and it's a it's a it's a chore and a daily routine to just keep on top of the moisture um, the battle of the uh, battle of the salt water, but um, on this voyage, it felt like we were almost in harbour. The dry decks, and you could just I could sleep even at night out on the deck at times. So, you know, I'm looking it at was a, actually I'm, a real pleasure. I'm looking at a, a map of the Indian Ocean, and it looks to me like uh, Sri Lanka was just a little less distance from Malaysia than than the Gulf of Aden was. So you had the longer passage in the Indian Ocean. Uh, by yourself, it looks like. Yeah, off on memory, I believe it was about seventeen hundred uh, miles, eighteen hundred miles, or that sort of thing. I think it was below two thousand miles to uh, to sail from Sri Lanka up to Aden, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I had a routine of of having a sundown or every night with um, with the local hooch that they make in Sri Lanka called arak. So of course it became known as an Iraq attack, and uh, <laughs> I just remember one night I actually had the first time I've ever, ever seen them jump. I had um, sailfish, two of them 
just to windward of me, um, and, and they jumped about three times out of the sea. And as they jumped, the whole fin on their back was erect and, and standing up. And these beautiful sort of three, three foot long, four foot long um, sailfish just jumped beside Cookie as I was having one of these sundowners. And it's one of those things you think, wow, what a privilege. You know, I've, I've got to be at this specific spot in the, uh, in the earth at just at the right time to see this. It was, it was fantastic. Let me and, ask you, um, let me talk about, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, I was just about to say, and, and one other memorable um, uh, evening of that crossing, again, at sun, about sundown a time, is uh, I actually passed a square rigger um, going in the opposite direction. And under full sail, I, I tried, I, I couldn't raise him on radio because I, I didn't have a radio at the time. Um, and so uh, so that that was the sort of, sometimes the drawback of going, um, in a back to basics way, but uh, but still, I couldn't I couldn't identify which one it was, but it looked beautiful in the full sail, um, square rigger, um, about three masted barkentine just uh, cruising on past. Yeah. Wow. Let's talk about the weather patterns in the Indian Ocean. You've got the two monsoon seasons, as I recall, the the winter and the summer monsoons. And how did you have to plan for the weather patterns there? And and if you can remember it, explain a little bit about the monsoons. Uh, if you can remember any of that. Well, yeah, I mean, again, part of the rush trying to sort of get uh, get over the top of Australia and through Indonesia was to to make sure I was positioning myself for these um, these events. I think, you know, when was that? That was, um, so uh, I left about New Year, so it's January. So it was about February, February time that I was crossing, crossing the... Um, Indian Ocean there and obviously that is the sort of the uh, the northeast monsoon and then you get more of the sort of the westerly or southwest monsoon um, and they are they are pretty much I believe on memory France I mean it's been many years since I've uh, I've sort of looked at the weather patterns in that part of the ocean but uh, yeah I think they're sort of roughly six monthly cycles um, and uh, and so yeah I think the the northeaster is the um, uh, I think the the drier, um, the drier of the, uh, of the of the of the um, seasons because we we had no rainfall at all and as I said beautiful calm calm conditions more or less and and no rainfall at all no squalls to 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 deal with at all. Um, whereas I know other people that have talked about a, uh, a crossing, especially when they're sort of slightly further south talk about a lot of squalls that they've had to uh, contend with and, and quite quite heavy seas going across between sort of uh, Australia and, and Cape Town and that sort of thing. So I was I was kind of hedging my bets to think that I would, I'd have a fairly boisterous um, crossing, but uh, maybe I was just lucky. I don't know. But we, we certainly had a very, uh, very gentle, um, gentle time in it. All right. So the Gulf of Aden... That's really where the pirates lived. Did you have any issues with pirates or anything like that at that time? Yeah. Well, it was always always on the cruising grapevine, you know, talking to other cruisers as you as you sail along. Um, obviously, some are more um, savvy or or switched on or got their finger on the pulse or got more news snippets than others and like to share it around. And you know what it's like, you know, gossip. The more the more sort of alarming the gossip is, the better on the whole. So you. <laughs> there was a lot of um, there's quite a lot of boats that actually went up to Oman, so further to the east. Um, they headed up uh, to, I think it's a place called Sahalas or Shahala, 
and um, and headed there first to congregate. And quite a few boats actually went together in convoy uh, along the um, coast of uh, Oman towards Yemen and towards Aden. <clears throat> and and you, we're talking about the sort of 50, 60 foot um, cruising cruising yachts with um, you know loads of antennas and uh, and outwardly looking quite an affluent type of boat. And so I think for security, quite a lot of them were doing that and they would have some sort of shore station or a, an SSB sort of net that they were talking on quite often. Um, at, at the time we went, this was in 90, uh, was this, early 97, there, there, was, there was sort of um, word of piracy going around, but I don't really think that there was much evidence of it. There, I think they were sort of um, opportunistic rather than a highly organized um, um, sort of a force at the, at the time, Franz. So I sort of, again, sort of hedged my bets as I used to through um, the Straits of Malacca and, uh, and those sorts of places, thinking, well, I'm, I'm hardly the, the prize that they'd be after. Um, I've, I always figured that pirates would come up alongside me and um, perhaps start offering me stuff because I was in a whole lot better, bad, bad way than uh, than they were. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, luckily, I never really had to. I never had to um, sort of cross that bridge. But um, so no, I, I sailed on straight. I, I I took a little bit of a wide berth off um, off the uh, the tip there of uh, of Somalia, the Horn of Africa, if you like. Um, I took a fairly wide berth of a few hundred miles and sort of headed up towards the uh, the southern coast of uh, Yemen and then sort of headed uh, directly sort of west along the coast there. And what was lovely, actually, as I, as I sort of went uh, towards um, Aden, about, a, about the, a day out or the morning before we arrived, I actually um, came across another sailing uh, boat. So we were able to hail each other and... Uh, and cross our courses and take photos of each other, which we could um, obviously swap in port. So, it's, as you know, in those days, before drones, digital cameras, and all that sort of thing, um, it's quite hard to, to get a photo of yourself sailing along. So, uh, so that was quite a quite a highlight, quite an event. You went right by a couple islands, uh, Scutra Island, is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah, and uh, another so, one, so, Samha. So. And did you stop in at either one of those? No, no. Socotra is the is the island off um, off Somalia. It's like they call it the Horn of Africa. I think it's the one that's right up on the tip there that you have to go. Now that's the one that was mentioned that uh, there could well be uh, boat pirate pirate boats in that sort of vicinity. So, um, well, when I say it, it was basically the hearsay throughout the cruising net. So. So that's where I, I, I made a quite a sort of definite sort of uh, course change around it, giving it a, a 100 miles or so berth um, and going up north of it. And uh, no, I just went, I didn't stop anywhere. I just went straight into uh, to Aden. Again, a lot of these sorts of places, I know they're politically a little bit, um, uh, what's the word, um, volatile. So I, I wasn't going to chance my arm at that, that point to actually sort of start stopping in places willy-nilly and not clearing in and doing my own sort of thing. I went straight to Aden. And really the, the process was not to do a lot of sightseeing along that coast. It was just to sort of get to Aden as a port of call to to just prepare for the for the next big journey, which was up the Red Sea. Um, and uh, 
And so, yeah, Aden was was a, a fascinating place. It was my first real um, Arabic and Muslim um, country. And um, going ashore was quite something out of this world for me. I mean, I've never really experienced that culture before. And, uh, of course, all of the, the women in long burqas and, and full robes, that sort of thing. And within the cruising community, of course, you know, we, everyone tried to play their part. Um, most of the women went ashore with with full full shirts on and long trousers and that sort of stuff just to you know be as be as um as sensitive as, as they could for the um for the local cultures and you did definitely feel like you weren't you weren't certainly you weren't in a tourist zone you were in a place that, that that was a working town i mean Aden is a big port it's a big navy port for for yemen um and in fact you you if you if you spotted taking photos from your boat in a certain way that has the port um, port installations in behind your photo, you can quite often get a patrol boat come right out and want to confiscate your uh, your film, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they were pretty um pretty tight on their security there too. You were given the um the pretty much the rundown by the port captain when you cleared in of what you could and couldn't do and where you could go and where you couldn't uh, go and and that sort of thing. So you did get the impression that you were in a in a a place where people are on edge a little bit because Yemen um, has its uh, its ongoing feud, if you like, with the Eritrea across the water of the Red Sea. Um, they're always battling it for the rights to have ownership to the Hanish Islands, which are a bunch of islands just at the right at the south end of the uh, the Red Sea. And so there's always a skirmish going on about uh, who owns them. Um, so, so yeah, Aden was very much a, a, an interesting port. I mean, the town of Aden is very, very dry, very, very desert-like, uh, a lot of dusty buildings. So not much to see sort of from a vista point of view, but very interesting culturally. Going ashore at night at some of the um, bars and, and uh, well, actually not bars, but just sort of restaurants. There was people, that, these guys came in with full, full robes, uh, and turbans on and jewels on it and slippers that were turned up ends that somebody looking like they just just walked off a movie set of Aladdin. <laughs> Absolutely just blew me away. <laughs> so so that was really fantastic and um I think I spent about sort of two two weeks in in Aden. I wanted to get going uh, because I didn't want to miss um the, the, the karma winds up the Red Sea and also in Aden we were downwind of the main sort of fuel bunkering station for the big ships. So on a daily basis, you had fairly raw bunker fuel just sort of as a coating sort of floating down the harbour and all around the boat. So luckily we had a tip-off for that, that that was the case. You know, in the pilot books, they'd warned you about it. So before I launched my um, my dinghy, I, I gave it a good coating of wax, of, of you know, like a fiberglass polish underneath the Avon, just so that when it came to, to cleaning it all off, hopefully it would just come off a lot easier because it hadn't really stuck that well to the to the dinghy. And in fact, it worked really well. It, uh, it did help. But to the sides of the boat and the waterline were just a sort of a thick, grimy, greasy uh, mess by the time we left. So, uh, so yeah, Aden was a victualling port. Uh, there was good uh, banter backwards and forwards between the boats. There were some cruisers that had already been up the Red Sea and down again, so they were a good mine of information. And everyone was kind of on a, on a state of nervousness 
of how they were going to approach the battle of getting 900 miles against the, uh, the prevailing winds up to uh, up to the Gulf of Suez and, uh, and the Suez Canal. And most most of the yachts, to be honest, had their um, plan where they just st stuck a load of jerry cans and diesel aboard and they were going to motor hell for leather whenever the wind was very calm. Um, but on poor, poor old Cookie and me, we, we couldn't have that option. So um, so we just sort of headed off. And um, and actually, I, I knew from the word go, Franz, I wasn't going to stay out in the middle of the Red Sea in the shipping lanes and just be tacking backwards and forwards. Because on my own, of course, um, I can't keep a very good watch uh, for ships and that sort of thing. You've got to sleep. Um, and so that that really wasn't a very safe option for me. Um, so I ended up um, sailing up up the coast and, uh, and then went day sailing and uh, made my miles uh, to windward day sailing and pulled into a little anchorage uh, every night. And that's, uh, that was my sort of mode of, uh, of attack, if you like, for the Red Sea. But in Aden, what I did was uh, I, I didn't really want to stop in any places to clear in, if you like. I didn't really want to clear into Sudan. I wanted to keep going and get to Egypt because I had my visa organized in, in Aden. I had to sort of write ahead to the embassy and, uh, and get a visa organized uh, for my, my sort of stay in Egypt. And so I, I provisioned Cookie for, for pretty much a month's voyage of, uh, of getting up the Red Sea and just... Um, uh, I, I spent a day drying bread on the back of the boat so that I could have some crisp bread on my way and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, we were, we were, we were sort of planning to, to not make too many sort of uh, stops to, to provision or anything like that. Now, was it humid um, or was it uh, bone dry in Aden? Was it was there much humidity or was it very dry? Pretty dry, I must admit. Yeah, not not a lot of humidity. Um, at night, uh, you know, there's quite a temperature difference. So at night uh, and in the morning, unless there was something, there, there, there was normally always a breeze blowing. But if if the breeze dropped off, um, then you got some some dew dew coming on the decks. But um, a lot of the time, there was a steady breeze, and you didn't. But um, no, there was more humidity just sort of in those first few few hours before dawn when the temperature dropped right off. Because of course, the big deserts either side, it does get quite cold at night. Um, either side but the um the calming influence of the coast of course does keep it fairly steady um so yeah yeah it was it was all around um a good stay in aden and uh what i did was when i departed i i sailed with a friend of mine uh, in company we just did a sail for the for a few hours to a, a a bay just to the west of aden where we were planning just to sort of anchor up and then scrub off all, as much of the oil off the water line and the dinghies and and just generally just try and clean the boat up a bit before um, sort of set, setting off. So I did that for the afternoon and uh, had a good af afternoon sort of sundown and with these guys, um, David and Judith on Tin Fin, the steel boat. And uh, that was our last sort of uh, hurrahs. And, and then they were going to stay overnight and set off in the morning. But I, I decided to set off that afternoon and... I spent the spent the night running my westing down, heading towards the the bottom of the Red Sea, um, what they call the Bab el Mendab, which is translated as the Gates of Tears, <laughs> and that's the the narrow sort of entrance of the south of the uh, of the Red Sea itself. 
and we had a classic kind of entry. Um, it's because the dold the doldrum belt is a couple of hundred miles up up the Red Sea. You tend to get a good southerly blast uh, helping you, you know, for your first uh, hundred miles or so up the Red Sea, and we certainly got that. In fact, with Cookie, we were sort of averaging about ten knots as I was hand steering and surfing our way up the uh, up the start of the Red Sea, and um, we soon went past the Hanish Islands the next day, and um, the winds calmed down a little bit, and I was able to keep Cookie really steady on the wind vane by putting the drogue out the back. It's interesting, it's the one time that I've done that under, under sort of a sailing conditions, instead of just putting the drogue out in a storm and just sort of being under a bare pole, if you like. Um, the winds were still about 30 knots, but to keep Cookie on a really straight course, because the last thing I wanted to do, because I was about 50 miles off the coast of Eritrea um, on the west side of the uh, the Red Sea. And uh, again, the pilots had said, if you stray too close, you could well get an unwelcome visit by the um, by the Coast Guard there. They don't like, um, um, you know, shipping being too close. So, um, so the last thing I wanted to do was uh, have Cookie zooming along, surfing under under the wind vane and, uh, and being quite erratic and me getting a, an hour or two of sleep and, and not fully knowing if the boat had gone off course or not. So I um I put the wind I put the um the drogue out and uh and it was lovely. I mean even under the jib and sailing along we were making a very steady, comfortable four knots, no surfing involved and making a very accurate course, maybe ten degrees either side of uh, of the desired course. So so that was our first night running up the coast of Eritrea and uh and I couldn't see land because it's very f- pretty flat in that sort of area, and it's quite hazy as well, quite dusty. So couldn't see land at that point. And what I did was I, I carried on for another another couple of nights, getting through the calm zone uh, of, of effectively the the intertropical convergence zone, which is quite narrow up the Red Sea. And, uh, and just as we started to get some light northerlies um, blowing in, I was just at the top end of of Eritrea. And, uh, and and the border with Sudan, and I managed to uh, to just make it across the um, the border um, one afternoon, and that was my first stop. Just anchored in a very sort of uh, wide open bay, sheltered from the wind and the sea. But um, that was my first sort of overnight uh, anchorage. And from then on, so I, so I hold then... on. So you, how many nights had you gone without sleep? Then it sounds like you uh, you were really pushing the uh, the envelope on staying awake. Then. Yeah, I, I got uh, a couple of nights. Well, the first night I got very little sleep because I was heading down towards the Gates of Tears and there was a lot of shipping around. So I didn't get much sleep at all that night. Then the second day I made lots of miles past the Hanish Islands. And then I could, uh, the second night I, uh, I had snatches of sleep under the drogue as we were heading up the coast of Eritrea. And uh, then the third night um, it was a bit calm and a bit sort of gusty. So I was just catnapping. Um, and just watching it, watching the boat, and, um, and as the wind sort of changed and, and came around from the north a little bit, so so yeah, it was about three nights, two of them just getting very very small snippets of sleep, um, and then we managed to get in and, and anchor for the uh, for the fourth night. Now, where did you in, anchor? Um, in Sudan or over in Yemen? Yemen. No, on the on, I, I was always heading towards the uh, the west side. Because you got Eritrea, then you got Sudan, and then you got Egypt. Because the other side, Yemen and um, 
and Saudi Arabia are not a very, they, at the time, they certainly weren't very um, hospitable coasts. Um, typically, the, the, the winds are northerly, but they can slant a bit northeasterly. So again, you've got perhaps more of a lee shore on that side and, um, and less, less harbors and places to pull into. Whereas on the, on the Sudan coast and the Egypt coast, there's a myriad of reefs running offshore little patch reefs on the hull, not, not a sort of a big barrier reef, although there are sections where there's a barrier reef, but uh, there's lots of patch reef offshore. And what I found uh, after a couple of days um, getting my, my sort of bearings and getting into it, what I found was I kind of just woke up each day and uh, approached it like just another day at the office. <laughs> I'd set the alarm for four o'clock in the morning, get up, have my breakfast, big big bowl of porridge to get me going for the day, and then um, all my waterproofs on, that sort of thing. And I would uh, I'd pull the anchor up at first light and try and grope my way out of whatever anchorage I was in, try not to bump on any reef and that sort of thing. And then I would uh, mainly be hand steering again because I was doing quite a lot of tacks where maybe I'd be half an hour on one tack and then be tacking over and then half an hour on the other tack just to navigate my way through these reefs. I had I had good charts. They're all photocopies, but I had uh, charts of the whole way up the uh, up the Red Sea through Sudan and Egypt. And with the photocopies, of course, they're just black and white. So I, uh, I spent many hours with a highlighter pens, you know, the greens and the pinks and that sort of thing, just to highlight which were reefs <laughs> and which were land and that sort of thing. So that at a moment's glance, I had a lot better idea what, what was what. Um, but what I found was by sailing Cookie along, I would actually use the reefs offshore as as navigation markers so that I didn't get disorientated and, and lose my DR position of how, how much progress I was making. So I would, I would often sort of head offshore on attack knowing that there was a reef I should see in about sort of, I don't know, an hour's time, five miles away, that sort of thing. And then... It was it was it was great because it was almost like a navigational marker. I would come up against the reef, you know, keep my wits about me, keep my eyes open. I would see it and go, right, I now know exactly where I am. I'm going to tack, and and I I now know my course I'm making on the other tack, and I should now pick up this reef in X amount of time, and I would. So as long as I kept um, very much on top of and concentrating on the DR navigation, it was actually a very very nice way to <laughs> to sail up through the reefs um, because because you could tick them off along the way and and keep track of your physical um, location if you like. But what I did have to do is always start um, making sure that I was planning ahead and looking for my afternoon anchorage at about three o'clock because if I was any later than that, the afternoon sun in the west would be so low that I could not see any of the um color changes in the water it was just flat sort of silver and gray and it was a far more dangerous to approach any anchorages because quite a lot of the anchorages were just reef passes and then what they call them in in egypt is masses you get a reef passage and there's quite a nice big lagoon that opens up on the desert foreshore uh, inside where the anchorage is but it's a big light bulb shape you've got a narrow pass through the reef and then you've got a big um sort of fairly wide round lagoon on the inside to anchor in. Did you ever yeah. read the book by uh, Eric Hansen called Motoring with Muhammad? 
I haven't known. Well, he uh, he actually talks about he was sailing. Uh, so he was on somebody else's boat, and they were sailing up through, um, up through the Red Sea, just like you're talking about. And they actually got shipwrecked yep. on uh, on one of those islands off of Yemen. And, uh, and he talks about the shipwreck, and then eventually how he, he ended up spending a lot of time in Yemen himself. So uh, he's a, a guy that wrote on Foot Across Borneo which is another book that you, you'd probably enjoy as well. But, uh, yeah, he yeah, talks about that a bit. So I was, so you would not really go over an anchor near Yemen. You would always anchor near Sudan. Yes, yeah, that's that's the I, – I went over that side. Um, I also had um, read a little bit somewhere, and, uh, and I actually found it myself, uh, Franz, because – being on Cookie and, and having to sail everywhere, I was my my main focus was on efficiency, trying to make the best out of whatever conditions were prevailing. Um, so it wasn't just sort of oh I want to get there and sightsee, so let's just wait for calm and put the engine on and that sort of thing. So really for me it was like very much keeping my eyes open and and every day really making a mental note of what the conditions were doing and i did find although it was pretty much straight on the nose the the red sea is not not exactly due north and south there's a slight slant towards the um towards the west so you're going sort of north northwest um up the uh, up, up up the red sea and um the prevailing wind was pretty much um northerly but in the morning it would start off a bit calmer on the whole, and there was a slight land breeze effect. So the wind would be sort of almost northwest. So for for an hour or two just after dawn, I could almost head directly north. So get I was I was heading offshore again on that tack, but it was a long, nice, broad sort of uh, tack where I made a good good gains to the north. And, and likewise, in the middle of the day, the wind was almost straight on the nose, and you just had to make equal tacks up, up the coastline. But by afternoon, the wind was tending to come round a little bit, and as the land heated up, the wind was slanted, blowing into to the to the land a little bit, so slightly north or very slightly northeast. And so, again, you know, you still had to tack, but the the starboard tack at that point became favourable, and you'd make a lot more distance and do a long starboard tack, then a short port one to get offshore again, and then a nice long starboard one. So so I found that that wasn't always the case, but on on days when the conditions were settled and, and there was um, a good sunshine, that sort of thing, it was uh, it was quite um, quite marked, yeah. Okay. All right. Now, did you ever yeah. clear into Sudan, or did you just stop in and, mm. <laughs> and sort of hide out? No, no, I just... I just Pretty much kept right on the fringe of the shoreline, and uh, anchored off behind reefs and uh, and and the and the, um, and the mainland as I went, and I didn't clear in anywhere. In fact, you know, Sudan is a pretty um, pretty poor country on the whole, and um, I don't think they are really too worried about patrolling their waters for um, for boats like ours and that sort of thing. Um, Egypt is a little bit more on top of it. Um, they, in a lot of their masses, their their anchorages, they quite often have strategic military posts, and um, and so further up the line, before I officially cleared into uh, into Egypt, I if I went into an anchorage and they had one of these military um, sort of uh, lookout posts, if you like, um, 
then quite often they would allow me to stay, no problem, even even not rely on me having officially cleared in. But they would just want to hold my passport overnight in their um, in their in their sort of um, their office, and then I'd have to collect it before leaving again the next day. That sort of thing. So. Um, so yeah, no, it was um, it was it was it was abs- absolutely fine. In fact, um, in fact, actually, no. On on memory, no, there was actually on the border between Sudan and and Egypt. No, I, uh, yeah, thinking about it, there was actually a there was a there was a recognised um, bay that you pull into. And I forget the name. I'm afraid I'd have to go through my um, you know through every part of my logbook again to to memorise it, but. Um, there was a specific anchorage you went to, and there was actually a fairly large motorboat, like a patrol boat, that was there. And that they actually knew that there was a lot of cruising boats heading past, and they they made a strategic point where you could clear in. So actually, no, I did clear into Egypt on the border of Sudan at this uh, at this place, and you could actually just anchor and then dinghy over and do all of the official on board this patrol boat. And be officially cleared into Egypt, but then on on on, on future anchorages, they still had their uh, military outposts that you would sometimes be requested to uh, to leave your passport. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Did you have to give yeah. uh, give bribes or bank sheesh to the to to the Egyptians? That's that's widely talked about in a lot of places. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the on the sort of more remote areas, no, not at all. In fact. Um, uh, as I got closer to the to the north uh, and the area of um, Pagada and uh, and that sort of thing near near to the Gulf of Suez, then um, I got got involved where I was in an anchorage and there was quite a lot of dive boats that were sheltering from from very strong northerlies, and so what I found was that uh, they were it was the opposite. These dive boats were just finishing their um, their their weeks dive charter with Egyptians on board so these guys from Cairo had come to uh, to, to actually um, hire out these dive boats and they're all heading off so lucky old me because they were full of provisions left over still on on the boat and so um, so I, I lucked out, they they were very interested in my voyage, very interested in, in cookie and that sort of thing and so um, we shared some stories and shared a good afternoon and they, they ended up uh, leaving the next morning and say, look, anything that is left on board this boat is yours. So I literally got re- reprovisioned on my way up the coast of uh, Egypt. And um, and I had, I, actually, I, I was better provisioned because they had loads of lettuces from their <laughs> fridges and, and vegetables and all that sort of thing. And so I was better stocked then almost uh, than, than I did when I left uh, left Aden. <laughs> So that was really, really hospitable. It's great. Um, no, the only time I, I had to start doing the whole bakshish um, routine was uh, once I got to Suez and started to do the negotiations to get through the canal and once you have to deal with the pilots that come on board the boat and that sort of thing. Okay. Now, what about water? Because that's something I would be worried about. There's not, were there very many places you could reprovision water or how much water did you carry on board? Well, I carry uh, a... I carry about 125 liters of water, and uh, I pretty much filled, filled Cookie right up when I left uh, Aden. 
and on memory i didn't don't think i i had to uh, top up at all that was okay for a month just one person on board that was fine but of course you know it's only used for drinking and and, and the minimum for cooking you know um and that sort of thing so no i didn't have to reprovision with water uh and and the actual food wasn't necessity but it was just a very nice um, bonus to, to have these dive boats um, sling me all their leftovers. <laughs> what about when you, when you filled up your water, did you just fill up from the tap and then did you filter it? Or did you worry about parasites or clean water? How did you, where did you get your water when you filled up your, jury, your, your boat? Yeah, I, um, that's a good point because especially through areas through Indonesia and, and, and the like, um, a lot of people, you know, and when you read the guidebooks, a lot of people would say you have to, you have to get um, like um, water from um, uh, um, bottled water, you know, in the big sort of five-gallon jugs, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, and I couldn't afford to just start taking bottled water aboard. Uh, that was way outside of my budget. I couldn't have, I couldn't spend the time to boil all the water I needed and that sort of thing. And I also didn't want to um, put the pure tabs in, you know, that give it the slight bleachy taste all the time. So on the whole, what I did was I just sort of um, would talk to to the local folks wherever I was and just ask them where a good good sound water source was. And and you, you also use your common sense, you know, it's not, you don't want a dirty pipe out of the ground. But as long as the water source looked good. Um, you know, I've had water from all sorts of places. I remember in Spain, in places like northern Spain, in Cangas, there was one of those good old-fashioned big levers by a fountain in the middle of the, um, the village square that people would come and, and get their get their water and do you know do washing and that sort of thing. And and you'd take your five-gallon jerry cans and fill up there and and that sort of thing. And uh, so no, what I did, Franz, uh, was just just do a bit of bit careful homework and try and always get the best water I could, but, um, and I would, uh, now just take it and just think, well, if I did get any bad gastroenter, you know, gastroenteritis or that sort of thing, then I had Imodium and, and the, and the sort of the, uh, the, the stoppers, if you like, on board until I could get somewhere for medical treatment. Um, and I kind of figured that if I did catch a parasite and that sort of thing in countries, then, I'm in the best place, you know. They they are they are versed of of those sorts of things in in their uh, hospitals. So uh, so hopefully I should get some treatment. But really, apart from barley, where I actually bought just a, a bowl of sort of frozen ice cream, if you like, from a vendor on the street, um, and uh, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. This lovely shaved ice with um, condensed milk and syrup and and fruit on top and that sort of thing. And I loved it. It was great until I handed the bowl back to the guy and I noticed this gray, grimy ring that was right around the top of this bowl. <laughs> I thought it was part I thought it was part of the pattern, but no, it was like it was a, it was a it was an organic um, ring that was around and I just handed the bowl back to him and he just took it and he swished it out in a in a big uh, bucket of water underneath his cart and put it up back ready for the next person and I thought, ooh. That doesn't look good. And sure enough, you know, the next day I was, uh, you know, doubled over in pain and I had a couple of days of real uh, barley belly. Um, but really for the whole for the whole around the world, that was my only time that I had um, had had the runs. <laughs> yeah. 
Did you do much? I mean, the Red Sea is known for its underwater life. Did you do much snorkeling or hop in the water much? I did uh, quite a bit, although having said that, mainly when there were other boats around, quite a lot of my anchorages, I was the only boat there um, because I was anchoring in all these little sort of very small out-of-the-way reef spots as I was hopping my way up, whereas a lot of the cruising boats would um, pull into more recognized main ports and then they would just wait for a weather lull before they then went hell for leather motor sailing or, or just on the motor to the next uh, main port, if you like. So so there was a lot of areas that I was just on my own, but there are a lot of sharks up the Red Sea, and so quite often I'd put the anchor down, and I normally love to, to dive the anchor and just snorkel and make sure that it's well dug in and I'm going to have a nice steady night's sleep. But, um, you know, when you when you put your anchor down and you're, you're feeling the good bite it's got in your hand on the bow there, and you're seeing these brown fins cutting through the water not far away, I kind of said to myself, you know what, I think this anchor's got a really good bite. <laughs> I didn't really feel too, uh, too happy about jumping in because there were a lot of tiger sharks around. And in fact, I, I met up with some Sudanese uh, fishermen one night I was in a very small little anchorage and they were out in their sort of dugout canoe setting um, um, nets to catch some inshore reef fish because the next day they were going to head out uh, with these fish and um, in, a, in a bigger sort of motorboat out to the outer reefs and, and go shark fishing because, of course, there was the market for the uh, shark fin, for the uh, Chinese market and that sort of thing. All of this was in very broken English or, or Sudanese and a lot of sign language going on and um, I, I met these guys because they came over the, 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 and amazing you know, such tall tall um, guys the Sudanese you know talk about um, the epitome of a, of a tall African warrior just amazing and um, this guy had uh, had a bad headache um, probably from the sun that day and so I was able to give him some some headache pills and uh, and he promptly took off his uh, sharp tooth necklace to give to me as a as a gift. And I said, oh, I can't take that, you know. And that's where I found out that he was a sharp fisherman, and that's what he did every day. Um, so, so yeah, up the Red Sea, there was a lot of sharks. And so I did I did snorkel during the, the middle of the day, but quite often when I got to anchorages at 3, 4 o'clock and the sun's starting to come down, you know, there's, there's a bit of a, a mantra that, um, you know, when you're living on board a boat, it's not always good to be um, to be swimming in the water at fish feeding time. It's just, as the sun goes down, eh? <laughs> yeah. So uh, so yeah, no, I saw some beautiful coral, beautiful um, sea life on the places I did um, did anchor. In fact, there was one interesting episode. I did have to snorkel. I'd um, I'd anchored right out in this very sort of remote reef because because the coastline went quite well in like a dog leg like a sort of a, a right angle and i was sort of effectively cutting the corner uh, uh, and keeping out to sea to keep a straight line to the to, to meet up with the coast further along and there was a nice bit of reef um, in between so I, I anchored there and it was a very calm this day so i anchored and i, I actually played around with the sextant to see if I could get a good sight, because I had heard that there's too much refraction, basically like um, almost like a, a bending of the of the sun because of the, um, the the haze 
or the atmosphere up the Red Sea is purported that you don't get a good sextant fix. So I was playing around this day, maybe because it was such a calm and, and clear day, I actually got a very good sight, and it put me within a couple of miles of my position. So it was a, it was a good, um, good exercise to actually use the sextant in, let's see, where you, where you have a known position. But, uh, but the next morning when I tried to set sail, I found that my, my anchor had got snagged in coral. It had obviously dragged back a little bit on the sandy spot and, and got into a coral patch. So I did what I could. I, I you know, under mainsail, I would um, hoist Cookie right up chocker block, you know, up quickly um, to the anchor, like right over it. And then I would let Cookie drift back and, and go sort of side on to the wind and then sheet in the main and go sailing off at 45 degree angles, right and then left and right and then left to try and break the anchor free but it was having none of it so um so what i had to do was just sort of take sail down again pay out some scope and then think well right i'm going to dive down and i'm going to sort of unhook the anchor and and dig it back in and uh and 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 then i'll be okay i'll dig it back in the other side of the coral patch and and i'll be all right that was that was the theory <laughs> Oh, blimey, I tell you, that was one of the, one of the most um, unnerving times I think I've had because I dived down. It was, it was about 20, 25 feet of water, so nearly at my limit. I can dive normally to about 30, 35, but not have much time down there. I've got to come almost straight back up again. So I dived down, and um, I unhooked the anchor, and then all of a sudden, of course, it's blowing quite strong up on top. Cookie starts taking off, and, and, and I'm, I'm basically holding the anchor, and it's pulling me along the bottom. I'm trying to t stop it snagging in any more coral. And then I'm having this horrible thought that, geez, you know, if I don't get it to hook, the boat's just going to take off on me and I can't stalkle as fast as the boat is drifting away. <laughs> so, uh, and all of this is going through my mind when I'm 25 feet down and I'm skittering along the bottom, holding on to my CQR as it's being dragged through. So, so I let it go and I swim as quickly as I can to the surface and start, start, planing it is not uh, not the right word, but thrashing the water to a foam to try and get back to the boat before she drifts too far. But luckily, the, the anchor did catch again on something, and she didn't drift too far before I was able to uh, <laughs> make it back to the boat. But those are the sorts of things when you're single-handed that um, a good idea can sort of go wrong quite quickly if you're not careful. <laughs> right. I've yeah. had that experience. I've had that experience with my boat drifting away ever so slowly, and I can't swim fast enough to catch up to it. But yeah, 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 yeah. You think you kind of get the impression you're, you're even with fins on and a, and a stalker, you think you're making good tracks through the water, but man, it feels slow when you're trying to chase the only boat that <laughs> your, your, your own sort of world is drifting away from you. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, so, I, the boat where, where I was at, I was in a very protected anchorage with uh, you know all around anchorage so it couldn't drift too far but it was just a pain to swim back to it so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah um so yeah i guess um we're heading up the uh up, up the final stretch uh, we went across once i got to sort of the the gulf of suez of course the the red sea almost splits as a y up there right by the uh, the Actually, it's the Gulf. Is it the Gulf of Sinai? Yeah, you got the, the Gulf, Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. A-Q-A-B-A -A -A is what it's showing here on, on Google. Right, yeah, just, 
just to the south of the Sinai Peninsula, isn't it? Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you, we, you should take a left fork in the road to get up to Suez, and at that point, I did sort of head over to the uh, to the right-hand side, if you like, the uh, the eastern side, and there's a uh, a, a town called Tor, T-O-R. It was um, a good stop off. So stopped off there and that was interesting because you're starting to get into the parts of the red sea where there's um um oil platforms and uh, and oil rigs and so it was quite interesting at night sort of sailing on through with them all ablaze and that sort of thing so um and at this point what was really interesting is i uh, i met up with a french couple uh on their aluminium boat about a 35 40 footer and uh and they were veterans, if you like, of the Red Sea. So they were really good people to know and, and get some good information about the Suez Canal coming up. But also they were telling me about their experience. They had um, they'd just come up uh, on the northbound trip and they had actually gone into the Hanish Islands way in the south um, and spent a night there. Well, that was their plan because they'd done that in the past many a time. They, it's, it's a nice stop off from them. Excuse me for them. After leaving Aden, it just breaks up the voyage, and uh, they get a good night's sleep, and then head off again. But on this particular trip, they they started coming into the bay uh, that they normally come into, and there was soldiers on the shore, and they were kind of waving at them, um, these soldiers, and clearly they was they were waving at them to to go to actually get out of the area, um, and. The French couple weren't quite understanding the meaning of this, so they carried on, you know, approaching, and uh, until a shot fired out and a bullet ricocheted off their hull. <laughs> yeah, and so that, at that point they turned smartly 180 degrees, put it on auto helm, and went down below. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so in, in retrospect, I was quite glad that I didn't, in fact, go and pull into the Hanish Islands. Uh, um, I was better off uh, being at sea. So, yeah, yeah, that was about that was about the only alarming sort of story, if you like, that I heard from any other cruisers on the on the whole sort of uh, journey up through through sort of um, Suez, um, Aden and, and, and the Red Sea and that sort of thing. So, yeah. But um, but yeah, we made it through to Suez, and uh, and then uh, you you come into the, the into the anchorage here, into the bay, and there's a yacht club there, and uh, they have uh, mooring boys all set up, ready for the holding pattern of of cruising boats, uh, arranging their entry uh, or their uh, their passage through the Suez Canal, which is quite a convoluted thing. You have to get an agent. That then does the negotiation. You have, they come and look at the boat and do a bit of a survey, look at the length of it, and uh, and do all your paperwork for you. Um, it's almost a, a. It's not. You're not able to do it yourself. That's the whole thing. They haven't tied up, and that's where this backsheesh comes in. Really, and these agents, I don't think, do very much at all. But uh, they're classed as agents, so they're your go-between for all of the paperwork and your your ship's papers and your transit through the canal, and and they go to the officialdom and get whatever relevant paper stamped and, and sorted. So it cost you a bit of money. Um, and at this point, I found out through the agents that you c- there was no ifs, buts, or maybes. The only way to get through the Suez Canal was under your own steam, or you pay $5,000 for one of the tugboats to take you through. <laughs> oh, 
So um, you can't have another so boat yeah. tow you. Another boat that's going through tow you. They won't let you do that. They won't let you do that. No, there was not not a possibility of that. In fact, I even explored um, when I went to see my agent. I think he was called the Prince of the Red Sea. <laughs> was the agent, and uh, I was invited to go up to his. I think even his uh, his his house, his apartment, and uh, he was entertaining. I think one of the officers from a Royal Navy ship um, that happened to be in, in harbor and waiting for their transit. And so I, I happened to just sort of sneak away and talk to the officer and say, would there be any chance of a, um, of a lift through? <laughs> Could they use one of their deck cranes and just, you know, like my, my same approach that I had in, in Panama? Um, and he, he seemed quite receptive. He seemed quite interested in, in my voyage and, and being able to help. But um, as soon as he went over and started talking to the, the prince of the Red Sea, uh, apparently that was frowned upon very, very quickly. And, you know, no, 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 that wouldn't fly. No, no, couldn't do that. It has to be under your own steam or, or a tugboat. So so that was the official word. And so really there was no spot. So I had to find another cruiser that I might be able to borrow an outboard from. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I ended up going to one of the work sites in Suez, just a building site, and uh, started chatting to some of the, uh, the workers there. And they, of course, they had a big pile of, of scrap wood. And I gave them something like five, five Egyptian pounds or something like that. And they were very happy for me to rummage through and get whatever wood I felt was um, needed. And I quickly knocked up a um, kind of an outboard skid to sling from the back beam and, and notch into the underside of the mast beam and just hang like a big, um, big sort of elongated Y under the under cookie and, and to be able to make a transom bracket for an outboard to sling from the back of the boat. And uh, and I did find a, a, a couple of friends that were loaning me their 10-horse uh, Evan Rood and uh, and off we off we started. Uh, I uh, I, I planned uh, to head off and uh, got my pilot aboard, and we got about a mile up the um, up the canal before the Evinrude died. Oh no! Oh no! Well, and, now, uh, let's, now, now let's back up. So you had already arranged all this. What was the pilot and the and the canal fees going to come to if you if you did it on your own? I mean, if you used your own power then. So what what did, do you remember roughly what that cost? Um, I again trying to pluck it out of the air. I think it was somewhere in the region of about a hundred U.S. at the time, something like that. Okay. okay. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't exorbitant. I mean, my my budget at this time and uh, my uh, my cruising kitty was was starting to get pretty slim, um, heading towards uh, the Europe. So, um, I would have remembered if it was much more than about a hundred dollars at this stage. Um, so yeah, I had a very nice guy come aboard, um, but uh, he, he the, the pilots are very sort of businesslike. They come aboard, and as soon as as the engine gave any sort of uh, it hiccuped a couple of times and then quit, he just said, "Right, turn around, we're going back." So I had to hoist sail and come back, and and he was like, "You know, make sure you know, let's do it quick. Make sure nobody sees you because you could get fined for this." So I was a little bit nervous doing that, but uh, but I had to do it, and. Um, and we sailed back in and, and picked up a mooring again, and it transpired that the the actual the um, the kill switch, the rubber the rubber casing for the push button kill switch on the front of the outboard, had perished. So as we were going along, 
there was enough slop and, and chop and spray going over the outboard that it soon shorted out the, uh, the, the kill switch. So nothing, I, I hadn't fried my friend's outboard, which was the main <laughs> concern I had. Um, we just dried out the switch and they were good to go. But I was meeting a friend of mine in Cairo uh, in about a week's time. So I ended up saying, well, I'm going to have to delay my passage through the canal, keep Cookie on a nice secure mooring. She was there outside the, the sailing club in Suez, and, uh, and I jumped on a bus to go to Cairo to meet up with my friend and, um, and do a bit of sightseeing and seeing the pyramids at Giza and uh, go to the big museum there and see the, the, the um, treasures of Tutankhamun and and, um, and generally some of the crazy sights and sounds of, uh, of Cairo and the River Nile, which was a, a very nice interlude. And this friend of mine, Nikki, um, she was the, the, the lady that sailed with me from Cairns all the way around to Darwin back in Australia. And uh, she was keen for a bit of a holiday, so she came out. And, and uh, so that's where we had our interlude. And Cairo did a bit of sightseeing. And then she was going to come up to sort of uh, Crete or, or one of the um, the Greek islands with me before uh, being able to be having to, uh, to sail home. So, so it was kind of nice to have crew back again. I was, I was pretty knackered from sailing up the Red Sea and, and doing all that day sailing and windward bashing. So it was uh, very, very nice to see uh, another person that was able to jump aboard and <laughs> come sailing with me at that point. So, Rory, yeah. we've, uh, we're going to start here with the, the passage to the Suez Canal next time. But just how long did it take you to get from the, uh, from the Gulf of Aden up to Suez? It was, it was almost uh, exactly a month. It was about 29 days, I believe. So, yeah, it was a month, which was pretty much on, on my ballpark. And, uh, and just to recap it all... Um, I had really set myself up for a, a, a real hard, hard sail to get up there. By all accounts, whatever you read, you, everyone's got the kind of the horror story of having to thrash their way up the Red Sea. So I really had psychologically prepared myself for one hell of a hell of a slog. And I must admit, on, in hindsight, it was tough and it was just monotonous every day, just going through the routine and getting up and. And I would average maybe anywhere between 20, 20 miles on a bad day up to 35 miles on a good day. And then occasionally, once in a while, there was a little low-pressure cell that would spin off from the coast of, uh, of Egypt. And we got a rare southerly for a day or, or, or just a sort of a slight angle or just calmer winds, that sort of thing. So, um, so overall, yeah, 29 days, uh, pretty much bang on my target. And... Um, and overall, it wasn't quite as tough as I thought it was with many more sort of enjoyable interludes along the way. <laughs> well, I just, I just measured it out, a rough measurement on Google Earth, and that's, uh, that's about almost 1,300 miles. My measurement, 1,268 miles, just as the crow flies, without all the tacking. So that's, that's pretty damn good time you made, it looks to me like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was overall, it was about... Um, from the bottom of the Red Sea uh, up to Suez is about 900, uh, 900 nautical miles, I think. And, um, and so by the time I'd actually got across the, uh, the border and got into the headwinds, I think it was about sort of, uh, I think, 
650 or so or, or 700 miles of actual wind would work. So, yeah, no, I was happy with Cookie. I mean, she she, she trucks along when, when I'm hand steering and powering the boat up. She'll quite happily truck along at five knots at, uh, at 45 degrees to the wind. So um, I'm happy with that. It makes it makes pretty good progress. And, uh, and you know, you've got a feeling that you're actually getting somewhere for all of the uh, pain you're going through. Yeah. <laughs> Great adventure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing with us, Rory. Let's get together again next week or the week after that and continue the adventure, okay? Okay, great there, Franz. Yeah, you take care, mate. You too. Talk to you later. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you have suggestions for future episodes, thoughts, comments, notes, write me, Franz1 at medsailor.com. And please consider becoming a supporter of the podcast through my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash medsailor. Or if you go to the website, there's a link at the website that will take you to that. And if you choose, you can become one of my patrons. I have lots of different rewards at various levels. If you want to be a patron, choose one which is comfortable for you. Thank you for listening. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. Joel, you want to know something? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future.